listen, same vision is for equal rights and justice for the people, them. What's happening to this beautiful world that we're living in? World citizen, lift up your voice. I want to welcome you, you know to another episode of the People Powered Planet Podcast, where each week we have exciting solutionaries. Uh, there are so many documentaries just about the terrible, terrible problems of the world that overwhelm us and can make us feel so hopeless. Uh, we, we focus on bringing to you people who are working on solutions that can empower us, can, can bring us together, uh, can do what uh, Gary Davis, the, the, uh, the, the historical figure who was covered in our film, The World is My Country, uh, he inspired us toward building a people-powered planet, a, a future in which all of us are the, are the governors of our small uh, planet Earth, spaceship Earth traveling through space. And uh, we've, we're having an exciting series now of directors who've been involved with both the film The Day After uh, and also with, with the powerful cautionary tale of warning us about the danger of nuclear war, uh, but also visionary tales. And next week, we'll be having Nicholas Meyer, who was the director of both The Day After and Star Trek movies. But today, we have a very, very special guest for you. Uh, we have Jeff Daniels, who uh, is a documentary filmmaker. He got started working on documentaries with Ken Burns, uh, starting uh, when he was back in, uh, uh, in his college days as an intern, and has been continuing to produce some very, very interesting documentaries, which we'll hear a little bit more about as we go on. Uh, but the original, originally when he was working, uh, uh, then he worked on civil rights documentaries, uh, for the producer of Eye, Eye on the Prize. And uh, so uh, we'll welcome Jeff Daniels. Uh, and uh, maybe we can just uh, start off uh, before we get to your very important film, television event. Let's start off with, which is, let's just start off with hearing a little bit more about how, as a young college student, uh, you got started working with Ken Burns. Oh, sure. Well, thank you very much, Arthur and Melanie, for inviting me uh, uh, into your space to talk about my project. You've generously shared the world is my country uh, with me, which I got to see and such an incredibly important story. So I, I appreciate that and, and uh, look forward to speaking more about your film as well. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I, I was a kid um, from New York, uh, Jewish mother, Italian father, uh, great food and plenty of things to worry about in the early 80s. That's basically where I come from. I'm a Reagan baby, raised with nuclear angst. I was interested in the world. My grandfather, Joe Caleb, was a photographer during World War II. He took photos of Nagasaki uh, after it was bombed, specifically to try and document the epicenter and then every space within a half mile of where um, the atomic bomb was was dropped. And so nuclear war was a conversation. History was something that was quite alive within my family. I was naturally a student of history. And when an opportunity came to try and um, uh, uh, share history in a way that uh, always appealed to me through documentary, uh, I thought, I, I want to work with the best. I want to work, work with people who really hit me. And I loved Ken Burns' baseball and civil war documentaries. He was working on the jazz documentary series at the time when I reached out to him. 
and uh, his people. And, and I said, listen, I, I, I want to work with you. I want to do whatever I can. I, I'll work for free. And after hammering them for a while, they eventually uh, said, all right, yes, you can work with us for free. Let, let's see if we can fit you in, in in some way. And it was just the best experience of my life. Uh, I, I think the moment when I was in a basement from a former Columbia Records executive in Flushing, Queens, um, looking in his damp basement at all these different photos of the Cotton Club with Billie Holiday and Louis Armstrong smoking joints. I, I, it was just the most amazing experience. Uh, and, and I thought, wow, I, I enjoy this. Maybe I should do this for a living. If I, if I enjoy being in this damp basement um, all summer, just looking at old photographs, maybe I should see if I can make a living doing this, imagine. Um, so that set me on a, a path to where I am now. That sounds like a terrific uh, kind of way to get into making films and the way you had to really be be persistent. And uh, you mentioned the 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 work that uh, you, your your family history of having worked on documenting documenting Hiroshima and the damage different distances from the epicenter, uh, which actually leads me to my personal part of my personal involvement, and that is. Uh, I was working in Washington, Washington D.C. with a group of retired admirals and generals heading the Center for Defense Information. These were admirals and generals mm -hmm. speaking out against a nuclear war because uh, uh, Admiral Iraq, who started it, realized his kids were marching on the Pentagon uh, protesting the war in Vietnam while he was in there planning nuclear wars. And this kind of shook him up. And he decided that uh, when he retired from the uh, from the uh, uh, Navy, to uh, set up the Center for Defense Information with the Quakers and the uh, uh, Fund for Peace. And he got this uh, set up and we had Paul Newman on our board. And so when they were, when the producers of the day after uh, were working on, on it, they needed to know the exact damage, distance, different distances from the epicenter, just what you were talking about. And I was the one doing research over at the Pentagon and so on and, and faxing out the information to the crew uh, so they could build accurate sets uh, to, to show that. Now, the day after, uh, it, it, your film showed the in, incredible impact of the day after. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about uh, how, you, how you came to make a movie about a movie? I mean, <laughs> why yeah. did you make a movie about a movie? And, and, and what... what, 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 what uh, uh, what? How did that grow out of your experience? Sure. Uh, well, now um, the day after it came out in '83, I was five years old at the time. But despite being that young, it wasn't lost on me what this was all about. There was, first of all, blanket marketing for this uh, TV movie. It was absolutely everywhere. I um, I've mentioned before that uh, when I was going to school, I'd see on the school bus stop there would be a poster for the day after with a uh, a mushroom cloud and a skull on it. And so I had questions, what, what does this mean? And I had a family that was very willing to talk in very real terms about what this all meant. So when I, um, when the day after screened, um, we all piled into my grandparents' basement in Flushing, Queens to watch um, the day after with, it turned out, 100 million other people. Luckily, my family had the sense to put me to bed before that iconic uh, bombing sequence. So I wasn't totally scarred, but you get the point. All these people I'm being introduced to are about to die a slow, horrible death. And that really affected me. The idea that you can press a button and change life as we know it really um, shook me as a five-year-old. 
I later saw the film in full when I was 10. I was still too young, uh, but, um, you know, 80s baby. And um, so uh, I, I'd say that later in life as a filmmaker, you have questions. How does a film like this get made? The fact that it was made by the ABC network, this family-friendly network just about to be bought out by Disney, the makers of The Love Boat and Happy Days. This is what ABC was. They were about to drop a nuclear war on the American living room. Uh, how does something like this get made? When I met Nicholas Meyer and read his um, accounts of how all of this happens uh, and saw a very idealistic, passionate artist trying to make a statement about the absurdity of nuclear war um, versus uh, network executives who are trying to win the ratings war. So that's their main goal, to try and get as many viewers in there as possible to suit their sponsors. I just thought, this is, this is it. This is the story of art trying to reach as many people as possible. Art with a message, mass media coming together. And the result was something that got the entire nation, the entire world really, talking about something that they would rather not. As a documentary filmmaker, that really makes sense to me. And so from that came television event. Wow, that, uh, that intersection uh, that you mentioned is as powerful as in my life as well. So uh, I, I appreciate that very much. Um, so tell me about uh, how you got to meet Nicholas Meyer and uh, uh, more about that. Yeah, Nicholas Meyer is an amazing guy. Um, I uh, I reached out to him, and he was a bit dubious about um, uh, talking uh, to me for quite a while. I, I um, and I realized this because the first thing I did when I after I read his book, I saw every interview I possibly could find on radio, um, on on the internet, and I I interviewed the people who interviewed him just to say like, what, what is he like? What is he not like? When did he shut off? He sounds like, he seems like the kind of guy who wants to get straight to the point and doesn't want to fuff around. How do I, how do I get to the point with this guy and not get him offside? So, um, uh, it, you know, so with all of that arms, uh, I, I approached Nicholas Meyer and, uh, um, you know, he, he said, hmm, well, all right, I'll give you half an hour. Five hours later, we um, had a really solid interview where he gave his whole side of the story and gave the, the whole laydown of what happens. And then after I had his interview, I realized I have a film here. You know, that I, I have every piece of the story told. All I need now is to find, try and find all the people who made Nicholas Meyer's mission um, uh, more difficult, all the obstacles in his way to try and make the world a better place. So it was a great adventure. <laughs> wow, you looked for all the obstacles. What a what a what a key! Every obstacle is an opportunity, right? <laughs> it's good drama, and you know this is how we live. It's uh, I, I really I you know the more I interviewed Nicholas Meyer, the more I realized I had a uh, almost a how-to guide on how to. Um, uh, how to make a point of reaching as many people as possible to make an important point uh, to, to talk. I mean, who, who, as Nicholas Meyer says in the film, who wants to think about nuclear war? How do you get people to do that? How do you make a PSA, in a way, on national television, on a commercial network? This is, um, it, it, I wanted to create something like that as uh, kind of a uh, how-to guide for future uh, people in the media who are desperate to get their their point across and their, their mission out there. 
Well, he he is really the the hero of your film and uh, helped uh, uh, helped make it so powerful. But there are also other heroes. I mean, it's kind of tell us about some of the uh, courageous ABC executives and uh, uh, and how they got into having the power to make a film like this. Absolutely. I, I you know I I mean um uh on on one side you have. Stu Samuels, who was the vice president of um, uh, ABC Motion Pictures at that time, who in a way seemed to be the opposite, uh, the, the person who was uh, the antagonist to uh, Nicholas Meyer and all of his uh, intentions. But um, it's, it's the give and take, I think. That, uh, Stu knew television. That's why he was there. He knew it quite well. He understood when people would turn away. If they're seeing something, that's too frightening. That's too graphic. And um, this, you know, this this wasn't a film that was meant just for theaters or just for streaming uh, based on your whim. This was something that needed to get the attention of as many viewers as possible because they were in competition with CBS, NBC, which had a, a series of, of, on the Kennedys at that point at the same time. How are we going to how are we going to, you know, um, uh, win this ratings war? And I think that you need someone like that to try and remind these passionate artists, hey, listen, we're trying to reach a wide audience here, not a niche audience. Let me show you what I know about this, and maybe we can come to a compromise um, and, you know, making a hilarious story. But another person who I think is worth uh, um, uh, putting up on a pedestal in a way is Brandon Stoddard, who eventually became president of ABC after he made The Day After. This is someone who started out making uh, on children's television with ABC in the 70s, making Schoolhouse Rock and some other really incredible um, uh, learning opportunities. He, he really did want to make something that was meaningful, despite being in charge of also making these absurd TV movies like the Dallas Ch Cowboy Cheerleaders and the Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders too. So, um, you know, uh, you have with Brandon Soddard, someone who had a bit of a midlife crisis and thought, how do I make something that doesn't make me feel like I don't deserve to move on to the next realm, whatever that may be when I die? And um, it's, it's that reasoning that made him greenlight the idea of the day after. He actually came up with it. And also pushing it through when everyone, everyone in the network said, this is a liability. We can't do this. We're we're getting the attention of the White House. They want us to edit or cut it completely. They think it's a national security risk. Let's just cut it. And Brandon Stoddard, with the then president of uh, ABC, decided to go ahead um, at a huge loss for them. They had almost no advertising on on that uh, show. Yeah. You know, I so, understand that yeah. you said all the generals ran. Yeah, Nicholas Meyer says, yeah, General Electric, I'll let him say that, you know, General Motors, you know, um, uh, General all of Mills, the generals ran for the hills. General Mills, they all, yeah, that's they all right. ran away. <laughs> yeah, he's a better storyteller than I am, Nicholas Meyer. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, so the, the, the network had the courage to do it, and they ran it uh, actually without commercial interruption during the program, although they did have the sponsors before and at the end. And um, I also uh, uh, made a, a PSA with Paul Newman that ran after the day after on many markets uh, in which Paul Newman said, it doesn't have to be the, end, be the end, you can make a difference and told people how they could get our nuclear war prevention kit, a guide to how they could become activists. And in fact, that movie did turn many, many 
people into activists. Uh, what, 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 what did you find about the impact of the day after on the people you talked to and, and interviewed uh, in, in, in Kansas? Tell us about that aspect of the story. Certainly. And to be fair, I think that it was the opposite in a way. The, um, it's the activism that had been going on for decades before and that had come to a fever pitch with Reagan um, getting elected in, uh, in, um, in the early 80s with this promise that the United States can survive a nuclear war, can win a nuclear war. That's what his people in his administration, some of them, were saying. Uh, and so that, that ended up um, creating incredible momentum among this decades-old anti-nuclear activism culminating in the Central Park protests in 1982 and June of 82, where a million people were protesting against nuclear proliferation um, and banning the bomb. And uh, uh, I, I think that that inspired a lot of the people who were working on the day after. It inspired the writer to say, absolutely, I'd love to take on this, this job. I think I was meant to take on the job of writing a screenplay for the day after. Um, the uh, the the producer the you know the director Nicholas Meyer as we mentioned the associate producer um, I, I mean um, a lot of these people really um, had a um, they they felt that they must make something realistic that shows America what a nuclear war would actually look like so that despite what they think about nuclear weapons, whether we need to get rid of them all or we need to build more, at least they know the facts of what it would look like. They could, um, through the, this is really, I think, something that speaks to me as an artist. This is what we do. We imagine the unimaginable so that you can put yourself into that moment and understand how it affects you personally. Um, so I, I feel that the work that a lot of anti-nuclear activists had done for decades before um, influenced the day after. And then, because the day after puts what these activists were protesting against in the American living room, you ended up having people uh, feeling, oh, you know, now I understand what these people are talking about, what these people are protesting on the street. Hopefully they either joined in physically or used their votes to try and create real change. Uh, luckily, the um, uh, reaction uh, after the day after was um, uh, one where people were more informed and Ronald Reagan could not get away with saying we can win nuclear war, we can survive it. He even admitted that himself just a month after the, the film screened in his, um, you know, uh, in his um, uh, speech, uh, the State of the Union speech that we, uh, a nuclear war cannot be won and should not be fought. It's pretty significant. It's a very significant shift, and uh, and I'm very glad that you've uh, uh, that you've pointed out that this was both the result of and fed into a massive movement of the people, people from the bottom up, and uh, we were of course uh, very much a part of that at the time. I made a film called War Without Winners with Paul Newman uh, that Great we film. made. Just you saw that too. Good. Oh yeah. And and <laughs> and in. Uh, in War Without Winners, we actually got to interview uh, one of the very generals you're mentioning, who are who are egging Reagan on. They said you can, we can fight and win a nuclear war, and they're egging him to do it. And it was Lieutenant General Daniel Graham. Now he was the the, the force behind the that the, what they called the what well, was the Strategic Defense Initiative, which mm -hmm. many people called Star Wars. 
And this was the idea that we could create missiles that could shoot down all the incoming Russian missiles. We could strike first, blow up most of their stuff. We could, uh, you know, when we knew they were about to go, we would, we would, we would strike first. And then they, and that was, that still is the official policy of the U.S. Hmm. If we think that the Soviets are going to launch a nuclear war, we strike first to try to knock out as many of theirs before they get ours. And he was uh, designing that program. And I'll play you just a little clip from our film in which you see one of the generals, or actually what he was saying about, uh, go ahead, about uh, nuclear war. It's only the generals who are brought up to fight who think that you can survive. And uh, the answer is the generals might live, but everybody else will be dead. If we knew that a bomb was gonna go off over this building in an hour, I would survive because I would walk, I can walk five miles in an hour and I would get behind something so I didn't get caught with the heat flash. The blast isn't gonna hurt you out there. The radiation of the bomb from the explosion of the bomb is not gonna hurt you. Uh, what would, uh, the only thing that can hurt you is the heat and it comes in a quick flash of heat and what you have to do is be shaded, that's all. Just as if you were trying to hide from the rays of the sun, you get behind something that shades you. enough brains to walk for an hour and get behind a lilac bush, we wouldn't be hurt by that nuclear weapon. Well, uh, I can't see how it would survive, you know, unless there'll be a telephone left hanging off a line or something. I mean, we, we really have made no provisions uh, that I can think of offhand. Currently, U.S. defense preparedness planning calls, expects some 40 to 60 million prompt fatalities after a nuclear explosion. These fatalities will cause a very significant health hazard. Most of them will be located in the northeast corridor between New York and Boston and in Southern California. The present plan to deal with this health hazard is to dig very long trenches with construction equipment to requisition quick lime and to bulldoze the bodies into these trenches, cover them with quicklime, and bury them. No attempt will be made to identify these fatalities so that next of kin can be notified. If the time were taken to do this, the health hazard that would be posed would be insurmountable. That's just a, a brief clip from War Without Winners, but uh, before, uh, before the day after, Ronald Reagan was actually believing generals like that. Tell us what happened next, Jeff. Hmm. Um, well, it, you know, I, I guess you have to understand the context from where Reagan comes from and um, uh, how the idea of showing a, a country that is strong in its ability to survive nuclear war by simply digging three feet under the ground and putting a door over your head. Um, these are the people who are in Reagan's administration. This is Reagan himself. This is what he believed. This is how you deter nuclear war by showing that you're strong enough to take it so that the enemy doesn't press that button. Um, it's, it's absurd, it's ridiculous, and we need to be reminded of that repeatedly. I think that 19, the 1980s was the time when people were over that. They, they had heard and grown up with the duck and cover PSAs from the 50s and 60s, and um, they knew how ridiculous it was. They understood that um, the mission really here is to try and prevent this from happening in the first place, not to deter it through having a bigger uh, or larger amount of bombs than the other person, 
uh, but trying to actually defuse these bombs. And um, I, with the day after showing people as never before in the United States what the effects of a nuclear war would be like, even though it was a very light dramatization of, uh, of that, something that the day after it admits um, uh, when it screens, um, Reagan understood the power of this. He was an actor as well. And uh, he knew the power that mass media could have in changing minds or making people more um, uh, better educated on these issues. And he knew he couldn't get away anymore with uh, kowtowing to members of admin his administration that uh, felt that deterrence and strength, peace through strength, uh, and showing that you can take it, you can survive a nuclear war. He, he knew he couldn't get away with that. And so I think that's why the day after, in a way, forced a change in rhetoric. Um, there were meetings, as my film, the tele television event shows, there were meetings in the Situation Room with Reagan and Kissinger and members of the military discussing specifically, what are we going to do about this TV movie of the week on ABC? So they understood the... the um, the power that art in its simplest of forms can have in informing the public so that they can't get away with uh, um, uh, uh, with lying to themselves is, is how I view it. Um, and and uh, the result was something quite amazing. And what did Reagan say in his memoirs about the day after? He says um, that he was deeply depressed after watching The Day After. This is the only time his bi biographers uh, state that he ever mentioned the word depressed in his personal diaries. Um, so uh, it's quite significant how affected he was by this. I I've read also that shortly after watching The Day After, he finally attended the, one of these meetings that is required of all presidents since the creation of, of uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, where he uh, they go through what the results of a nuclear attack would be on the U.S. And uh, Reagan learned from that meeting that 150 million Americans would die if the U.S. won whatever winning a nuclear war looks like. And that, I think, was enough for Reagan to realize this is mad what members of my administration are saying about us surviving nuclear war. That's a, that's a life not worth living. If, uh, if over half of our country dies in the event of us winning a nuclear uh, confrontation. So, um, you know, it's, it's amazing how even the simplest forms of art really put things into an emotional realm so that we can factor that in, in equal weight to our political understanding, our military strategic understanding of, of what nuclear war actually is, so that we can add a bit of humanity to this question. Um, and, uh, you know, in our country, we, we need leaders to um, be affected in that way uh, for real change to happen. And, uh, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, um, it, you know, it's quite an interesting situation. An actor president, a period in the 80s where more people than ever before or since were watching network television. What an incredible moment in our media history. This is something, uh, one of the main reasons why I wanted to document this period in making television events. Yes, you mentioned uh, 100 million Americans watched the film more than any other made-for-TV movie before or since. Uh, but in addition, 200 million Russians saw the film on Russian television, where, mm. of course, with state television, they're limited in their channels, and uh, had a powerful impact and, I think, in many ways, paved the road for Glasnost and for, uh, for, for, the, for, the, for the shift that happened in the Soviet Union 
so I think that in, in, in that crumbling as the Soviet Union. Um, so I think the film uh, had a very powerful impact uh, in both places. Uh, tell, tell me a little bit more, you were talking about the emotional side of it. I thought a fascinating part of your film, television event, was come, re revisiting the people in Kansas who had been the actors uh, in the uh, hmm. making of this film. Yeah, I, I it was. Um, I felt it was important to go back to Lawrence, where the day after was filmed. This beautiful college. It's a city, really, but it you know it, it has a town kind of feeling, and it's uh, um, Lawrence, Kansas, has a incredible history. Uh, it, it's um, it's in the center of abolitionist uh, Kansas, and um, they're right near the border with Missouri, which was a slave state during before the uh, Civil War. And so there was a lot of raiding that happened uh, of Lawrence by um, pro-slavery protesters who'd go across the border and um, burn Lawrence to the ground. They'd have to rebuild this hotel uh, in the middle of, of the town that um, prided itself in, in um, uh, being a bastion for, uh, for uh, at the abolition of slavery and trying to keep Kansas as a free state. So um, this is a community that understands being the idea of uh, their entire um, uh, town being raised to the grounds because of something that they believe in or, or because of ideological reasons. Um, and um, that really hit them, the idea of seeing their town again through a film raised to the grounds in a nuclear apocalypse hit a lot of members of that community. And it, it's also a college town. So you had many thousands of um, young students who, uh, people in their early 20s who uh, were very much affected and, and frightened by the saber rattling that Reagan was doing with um, uh, the Soviet Union. And um, they, they were part of the, um, the, the community at this time that um, felt 75% of, of uh, the country felt that nuclear war was going to happen in the next five to 10 years. Imagine being in that that states there. So you had a lot of willing participants saying, whatever I can do to try and bring this idea of nuclear war to life so that people can watch it, um, so that my parents, my, my siblings, my cousins can, you know, my friends who may not care about this issue or who are actively not thinking about it, they're forced to watch it in some way through a simple emotional story that Nicholas Meyer told very effectively so that we're able to feel it, um, feel the idea of a nuclear blast on the heartland of America on an emotional level, and it hits us personally. It, it doesn't become some vast, indigestible global issue like climate, the climate crisis or the refugee crisis. That's over there. It, where is it happening? It's not really affecting me. Well, you know, films like this show, yes, it does affect you personally, and that creates this... Um, uh, sense of urgency that I think is needed and the a kind of momentum that is needed um, uh, by the protesters who have been working their lives and continue to work to try and push the agenda of showing people how absurd nuclear weapons are, how destructive they can be, uh, so that the average person comes along on that and, and sees um, that there's, um, there's a point to this and that leaders their leaders can't get away with lying to them anymore about the idea of a survivable nuclear war. I wonder very much whether current 
leaders are aware of the real impact of nuclear war. Uh, it seems like we're now moving into an era that could be just, just or even more dangerous than hmm. that period back then. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, I think it's, um, I, I, I'm sure some of you have seen over the past few weeks, this um, PSA, a nuclear war PSA that the city of New York put out, uh, basically 90 seconds saying, if a nuclear war happens, who knows why it happens, who knows how these things happen, don't worry about that. Just get inside, stay inside until an authority figure tells you to come out. All right, you got this. That's essentially what that PSA said. And I think it's absurd that you still have, um, I, I, don't, I don't believe any government PSA has been made in the past 40 years in the United States talking about a survivable nuclear war. That is what these PSAs do. When you're given a situation that seems confusing, that where you don't seem to have any control in the chaos that is nuclear war and uh, having and obtaining and building nuclear weapons, then having a list of things that you can do to keep yourself busy is very reassuring. And that's dangerous. It's, it's um, promoting the idea that nuclear war is survivable and using it again as a tool of deterrence to say that we are a strong country, that you're New York strong, and you can take this, you got this. No, we don't. We'll be vaporized the second uh, the big one hits, as they call it. Um, the, uh, the, the slow death of tens of millions of people, if not over 100 million because of uh, nuclear radiation, uh, it, it's uh, the, the nuclear fallout that, that results from this. We need to educate ourselves on the true effects of what happens when we use these weapons, when we build them, when we have accidents, which is really what the threat is. So that's why I made a counter PSA uh, with the help of um, The Nation magazine to um, make a bit of a mashup of the old nuclear war PSAs from the, the 50s and 60s to show how absurd they were. And if you go on to televisionevents.com, you can see uh, that I give a link to this PSA. Um, and then I give a link to resources of information on what the true effects of a nuclear war would be, uh, or one nuclear bomb if it hit the city of New York, and uh, a link to other organizations that are trying to prevent this from happening so that people can better um, educate themselves on the facts and make better decisions about which um, authority figures uh, they uh, and, and leaders they put up here um, so that we can make better decisions on how to hopefully dismantle our nuclear arsenal. I uh, grew up in Washington, DC, and in high school, uh, we were given that whole duck and cover thing and the teachers were, they had drills where uh, they put on the alarm and everybody was supposed to duck under their desk <laughs> and I refused to do it. Hmm. And I got sent to the principal's office and I said, look, this school's not going to be here if there's a nuclear war. What are you talking about hide under our desks? We've got to prevent a nuclear war, uh, not, not, not hide under our desks. And um, uh, I think that was the, the tenor. I later got to work with, a, with a, some excellent filmmakers uh, who made a film called Atomic Cafe. Oh. Uh, and I, I, was, I was not a key part of that at all. I was just down in their basement looking at some of the archival footage with them. But... Uh, Kevin Rafferty and his brother, and anyway, uh, excellent team. Uh, but it's uh, they put together in a very uh, humorous manner. You may enjoy seeing it. 
take a look online, the film Atomic Cafe. Uh, so this was a time when as storytellers, as you mentioned, we were very, uh, uh, very, well, I think what convinced me to move into storytelling is in working with the admirals and generals, I, we would prepare a testimony for Congress. We even had Paul Newman testifying. And I felt there wasn't going anywhere. You know, we, we did all this. We had all the right facts and figures, and yet things were going the wrong way. And I realized that what touches people is not uh, facts and figures, but emotion and, uh, and stories. Yeah. Uh, talk to us about that. Well, I, I, I think that um, uh, I, this is what artists do. We, we're able to uh, uh, tell really good stories that um, hit us in a way where we are able to confront these issues that we would rather not. And there's a place for that. Uh, and it's undervalued. It always is the, the power that artists have in trying to get us to confront with these difficult, hairy issues, usually because the people who we rely on to fund these projects have their own agenda and um, may not necessarily be in line with world peace or, or whatever it may be. Um, so it, it's a precarious business, um, independent art and art that has an agenda of uh, trying to inform uh, people of the facts so that they can make better decisions for themselves. Um, that's why I think it's important to support the arts in that way. You know, This is a very unsustainable industry that a lot of people who look like me get into for reasons, you know, uh, um, I, I, I was able to um, support myself quite well. I, you know, I had my family that was able to support myself, uh, to support me as I was trying to become an independent filmmaker. Uh, most people don't have that opportunity. So supporting the arts so that you can get these stories out there from people who um, have this, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, agenda so that we're not really, um, uh, reliant on people who uh, may not want to hear what we have to say, um, it, you know, it's 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 very important because, as you're saying, Arthur, you know, it, telling a good story and allowing people to equate the emotional understanding of these complex, vast global issues is quite necessary and quite human for us um, if we're to to move forward with um, these important issues. Well, you've certainly done a, a fabulous job of touching emotional chords uh, in your film television event, uh, and as well as capturing the essence of that film. Um, tell us just, just, just briefly, in, the, uh, in your film, you had some very interesting emotional stories from people in Kansas who went back and watched, uh, wanted to watch the day after. Uh, what would, tell us about that impact. Um, it, it was great to share uh, the day after with the mayor of Lawrence, uh, at, who made this incredible speech in front of uh, the, the citizens of, of Lawrence, Kansas, after the day after was screened. Uh, they had a vigil, a midnight vigil, um, to, to, um, to, to remember Lawrence, Kansas, as, as if it were really destroyed in a nuclear war. Uh, it was an incredible moment that he was there for. And... Um, uh, that was very much, um, it, you know, he really drove home the point that it's important for us to see this image of all of us dying a slow, horrible death or being vaporized instantly. We don't deserve this. It's hard for that impact to not come through in some way. If you're a human being, it has to hit you in some way. And then you're left with this decision. What am I going to do about this? Um, that's exactly, um, 
the intention that that you would want. And I think to see it from the mayor of Lawrence and how his um, town was deeply affected, not only by making this TV movie, but by watching it. That's how I begin my film, by looking at a, a family in Lawrence, Kansas, as they watch the day after live and react to it. Um, we we need to lean in, in into uh, these emotional moments. We we need to be proud of our emotional understanding of these issues. If you have a problem with that, speak to your therapist. <laughs> you know this is something that we need to um, to get a hold of because our lives depend on it. Well, this film, uh, the day after, of course, was was back in 1983, and we need so much something to touch people today. And your film is brand is is just now hitting the. Uh, uh, circuit of being available for uh, screening uh, for people to screen on the various platforms. Tell us more about how people here uh, can both watch your film and how we can help encourage everyone else to watch this new film you've got out. How can we help you put bring this forward? Oh, definitely. Well, it, I'm uh, proud to say that it has just been released online, so it, it's now available almost anywhere where you watch films online, Amazon. Uh, Apple TV, it's on YouTube, it's on um, uh, Google Play, uh, uh, pretty much anywhere uh, similar where you can watch films, you can uh, see television events. You can also go to televisionevent.com. There's a link, an easy link there uh, to view the film, but more importantly, uh, or equally as important to uh, find some information on the facts of the effects of a nuclear war and other organizations that are actively uh, uh, working to inform the public and governments on the dangers of nuclear war. Um, so yeah, go to televisionevents.com or simply uh, go to your, your favorite online streamer and uh, you can rent it. And then, um, yeah, share online uh, at television events is where you can find us on Twitter. So um, yeah, go for it. Wonderful. Well, on that note, let's throw it open for some questions or comments from our our uh, audience here, and uh, and from uh, there, are, of course, uh, uh, people on our various other platforms around the uh, uh, around the country on the podcast platforms. Uh, but let's go ahead and turn this to Melanie now, who was the producer, is the producer of the uh, People Powered Planet podcast and of the World Is My Country film. Uh, Melanie, take it. Goodness sakes, Jeff! Wow, what a so much information. I just want to say real quick, um, I was, I knew about the day after and I was afraid because I don't watch violent films. I don't watch anything like, ah, no way. But um, I knew I had to watch it. <laughs> but your film was like getting into a pool where you just go in a little bit at a time and it's fine. And when I watched the day after, I was fine. And what it did to me was make me Yes, I want, now I'm ready. I see it, I see it. I viscerally went to it through uh, being, uh, having my world destroyed. And now I'm okay and I'm gonna do more to stop this because we don't deserve it, like you said. So we have lots of questions. I, I, I understand you can stay just a little bit longer. So we'll hopefully get through all of them. Okay, Quanta, you are up. Go ahead with your question. You wanna unmute yourself. She can't, no video, but go ahead and ask your question. It would be very, very interesting and, and I think very inspiring and uniting if someone with a vision of unity 
bring the fractured, you know, politically fractured society that is being exploited with lies and consumerism because we're all busy buying and entertaining. And so somebody has to have vision to bring all these people together in same thing as the, uh, the day after, but before then, and then also a comparison, what if we didn't do this and spend the money on human development rather than human destruction? So I hope that someone with that vision will bring something so that people <laughs> will wake up and they say, wait a minute, we're all on the same planet. What is this? You know, somebody's exploiting us. And I think that the Eisenhower's 1961 speech is very, very, very important. Hmm. Uh, and I'm sure you have examined it. So just a thought I wanted to share. And perhaps, hmm. you know, you can think about to, how to do it because I know you will. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Quanta. I I was um, I, I began making uh, television events shortly after Trump was elected, and um, there was a lot of discussion in my family even about this, and and uh, um, it created fractures. It, it became difficult to talk with people who I was very happy to speak with about politics beforehand, and uh, I saw how polarized the country was becoming yet again to explore this and revisit this time in the early 80s when our country was uh, equally fractured and polarized politically. Um, and yet through this medium of television and this, this unique moment where more people were watching uh, network television than ever before or since so that you can get a number like 100 million people watching the same thing at the same time, it created this galvanizing moment that you're talking about. Um, it, it acted in a strange way as, uh, um, you know, this, this great kind of leader just putting us all together despite our differences so that we could talk about what we all just saw and felt. And I felt it was important to remind myself, my family, my country, that we, we did this before. You know, we didn't all agree with each other, but we were talking with each other about a very complicated issue. And um, we, something constructive came from that, from all of us talking together. Um, maybe we didn't save the world, um, but some change was made. And um, I think it's important to say, you know, this is possible. We can't be cynical about how are we gonna galvanize people? No, where are we gonna find leaders to bring us all together? It's possible, this can happen. Um, you know, it's it's more difficult now, but um, I think that's something that I hope people would uh, take away from watching television event. We want to go quickly to our next question. I want to introduce Sim, who is actually with co-sponsoring the Ban the Bomb Month. Sim with Montreal for World Beyond War. Go right ahead with your question. Uh, hi, hi. I'm, it's really nice to meet uh, Jeff Daniels. I had only seen his picture. He looks just like his picture, by the way, which is good. <laughs> No, uh, that film was very, very interesting. Uh, I'm talking about now about um, the day after because it was uh, bizarre on many levels. Like the, normally you would see like a documentary, which is documenting. So there's someone behind the camera and there's the actual real, real world 
real, real world on the other side of the camera or else total fantasy where you've got filmmakers and they're you know, imagining a world. But this was actually real world people acting in their own, showing what could happen, giving us a vision of the future and the film people behind it and then the world watching. And so there were all these levels of like reality there. And then the people, there was one moment I found in, in Jeff Daniels film, the most uh, poignant moment for me was when he, somebody interviewed this young woman who was the star, she was- uh, Oh, Ellen Moore. Yeah, the young girl. Yes, and she looked at the film, she was actually watching herself in the film, imagining this, this horrible, fate and she started to cry and she said that was my my city said why are you crying she said that was my my town so there are all these levels of reality and for me it really brings home the idea that like currently in humanity's this moment in humanity's trajectory if you will there's a lot of confusion and we are not like our 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 great strength as a species, you could say, is imagination and our ability to come together over imaginary ideas. Money is an imaginary idea. Okay, money has no value. It's just a piece of paper. But we've all agreed and we've all come to the conclusion that this is going to be, and, and now it's become like a status symbol. Anyway, I digress. But we are we are like caught up in so many levels, like media, technology, uh, consumerism, all these distractions from reality. Has anybody read uh, Becoming Animal or that was, I think it was made into a film as well? Becoming Animal. Hmm. It was not. a book that was made into a film. I saw the film first and then I read the book. But he's um, somebody that's talking, it's basically about animism and the idea that uh, there was a time when human beings lived in the real world and we were in touch with the real world and we recognized the sacredness of the real world all around us in the physical world. And somehow we've totally, and also unfortunately, what was a survival skill, which is denial, has now become our raison d'etre and our, our main, our main, like for some people who are more left-brained, it's, they are totally in denial. They're totally in a sort of copy of the world in their minds. That's another book, Master and His Emissary, about left and right-brained people. Anyway, I digress again. But the whole thing is just that it's interesting on all these lists, we have to bring people back into the real world and bring them back and, and this is even people in high places. I mean, I'm reading right now Command and Control, which is about all the atomic accidents, including the Damascus accident. And it's mm. really, it's horrific. Mm. Uh, these things are always uh, breaking, exploding, short-circuiting, people are dropping wrenches in them. They're, 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 I think you can't maintain tens of thousands of nuclear devices constantly in the world. So we, I think it'd be interesting to see how we could do something like, I'd like to see Dr. Strangelove. I've seen, Do did anyone like, don't look up. I love don't look up. Yeah, like black humor as a way of bringing yeah. uh, people into. It. So we could manipulate this to our advantage. And like film is a double-edged sword, but if you could get a film that could really achieve what uh, the day after achieved, again, that would be great. No pressure. <laughs> I would, I, and I'm asked this question a lot. Yeah, <laughs> about you know how can we do this now? Now that the media landscape is so fragmented, how do you get a hundred million people? And I'm wondering if that is um, uh, maybe not the direction we need to go in. I, I think it is important that you now have so many different networks that reach niche audiences, so that you can speak to um, people who are really interested in this one subject. And uh, there, it, uh, it, the, the film that they watch, the, the painting that they see, the podcast that they listen to, 
hits them in a way and get, provides them with the tools and language that they can then refashion in a way to speak to a larger audience in a certain realm. Hopefully you're speaking to people, many different people who believe in, in different things and you're bringing them together in some way. But um, I don't know, may, maybe the idea of um, trying to reach that mass audience isn't absolutely necessary. You just need to get people to start thinking emotionally and with a sense of urgency that um, they are personally affected by these issues and need to do something about it and hopefully work with organizations um, uh, like ICANN and uh, like, uh, you know, uh, def uh, Diffuse, um, uh, you know, Nuclear War and all these great organizations that are doing a great job um, lobbying governments, uh, speaking with the UN, trying to um, ratify resolutions to abolish nuclear weapons. These people are actually doing something and they need our support. Um, you know, that's where the numbers need to come in uh, through signatures, through donations, through activism and people. I, yeah, can I just themselves. ask you one more thing? Like in terms of talking about all these different layers upon layers, like the entire political world seems totally out of touch. I mean, Nancy Pelosi and, uh, you know, Donald Trump, I mean, uh, Ronald Reagan himself was a film actor, Schwarzenegger was a film actor. There seems to be a scary kind of correlation between the ability to kind of suspend reality and they live in this alternate universe of political man maneuvering. You know, how could you bring the politicians on board? I mean, this was achieved with this film once, once upon a time, 40 mm. odd years ago. Is there any way to uh, educate or somehow bring uh, politicians down to earth with the rest of us uh, through film or something? I, I think it's also important to recognize that while Reagan did state publicly a month after watching the day after that nuclear war, a nuclear war cannot be won and should not be fought, he was elected in a landslide after that uh, into a second term. Um, and it, it took a while for uh, the, the uh, treaty in, in Reykjavik to be signed with Gorbachev. You know, it took another leader to uh, come around on, on the Soviet Union side in order for real change to happen. But um, it's, uh, I, 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 I think if there's any point that I want to make with the, the television events, it's that a better informed public in many different ways, informed of the facts, armed with an emotional understanding of what can happen in the event of nuclear war, that's something that leaders can't ignore. And so regardless of whether they change their mind or not, they're being held accountable when you have a better educated population. And I think that's something that doesn't necessarily need some mass act, some, some big film or, or something um, to, uh, to change minds. We just need to keep the momentum of this conversation going. And uh, I, I think the only way to do that, I think one of the ways to do that now is through small acts supported by independent artists who can speak their minds um, uh, and uh, empowered by people like you um, who really need their support and organizations who are really in a position to put pressure on our leaders and to uh, better inform the public in creative ways so that these leaders can't get away with the status quo and um, uh, to meet their own agenda. Um, you know, that's, that's where we get the numbers from at this point. And that's what we can actually do, physically do now in order to um, you know, keep this momentum going. Yeah, it, and I'd like to add, um, thank you, Sam. Very, very good. Um, I'd like to add, the, you said the power of the people. There's, um, Obama said, you, you know, 
many presidents are stuck. They're in this big ship, they're trying to direct it and they can't do it. And if there's the, the wealth of, of a, a growing surge of the citizens absolutely changes things. And we, we have to remember our power and, and we have to remember that we can divest. We're actually, if you have investments in uh, nuclear weapons, you can find out. Go to Don't Bank on the Bomb, and you can find out if you're actually paying for nuclear weapons right this second. There's even a link. It will show you. Um, they'll give it a grade A, B, C, F, whatever your your fund is. And so, huge power of the people. Um, it's important that we know this, remember this. And the main thing is a lot of people have forgotten. So, Jeff, your film, I'm hoping, will go viral. And I'm hoping millions and millions and millions of people will see your film and then, of course, want to watch the day after. But to get back into the mode, remember what we're doing. We are stopping this. We let it go because we stopped working on it. The power of the people stopped working on it. It's just flowed along. And, and now we have this problem again, 13,000 nuclear warheads. Ridiculous. So we can stop this. You know, we can do this. So all of us together need leaders. Everyone has to get involved. Anyone who's alive today needs to help. So in whatever way. Okay, so now quickly, because we're, oh my gosh, Jean, can we just quick, quick questions now? Jean, go right ahead. I just uh, want to give such a thanks for this, this, uh, this meeting today and all of the work that, uh, that you are all doing. And uh, I can't applaud enough your film, Jeff. And um, and all the work that Melanie and, and Arthur have been doing also with films. And I really do hope that it becomes uh, viral. I wanted to mention, I put on an environmental film festival in Taos, New Mexico, and I have uh, tried to promote The Man Who Saved the, Saved the World, which was also screened in, in uh, Russia and Putin has mm. seen it. And there's just so many things. And I, I hope that someone like James Cameron and, and Peter Jackson, maybe they could collaborate with you. I don't know if you're still down in Australia to mm. create something because like Top Gun, I mean, that was about going in with jets to get uh, uranium enrichment. Mm. And it's, it's sold more than any film this year. All It's gone around the world. So I do think that film is so important. And right now the MPT review is going on in New York. Maybe somehow or another, you can get people to look at your film uh, the stakeholders right now because it's so critically important. And uh, there was something in the uh, Wall Street Journal recently where even Henry Kissinger is terrified about what's going on between mm. China and Russia. So that might be a way to get some people on board. And um, that, I guess, is the PSA, if you've seen that, with Ventura County also which is near Vandenberg Air Force Base. There was a guy, I sent it to um, Melanie. He did a spoof uh, about these PSAs and mm. how ridiculous they are. And he's out of Arkansas. So Melanie could probably share that with you. But uh, that's just sort of my stream of consciousness. But I'm also a big devotee of World Beyond War. I just finished the class on how World War II could have been avoided. And I've taken a number of those classes. And so to galvanize, I just feel that it's completely lacking. I grew up in LA. Uh, I was about 13 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I think I still have PTSD from it. So onward and forward and, and whatever you can do to get this out more. I don't know how. 
Mm. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for the suggestions. Let's go to Bonnie. Bonnie, go right ahead. I wanted to ask you, I'm very familiar with politics back in the 1980s, um, especially with Reagan's office. I actually worked with them. Um, mm. I was the original co-producer director of Dial a Shuttle, the first international telephone broadcast. Mm. Um, and uh, we were still actually working under Congress to get our job done. Um, the thing that I'm very familiar with is there is politics in the press and then there's what's really going on. And what was really going on in those offices wasn't Reagan deciding or Reagan doing. There was a committee of people and actually Mrs. Reagan was very often involved as well. Um, I was dealing with a couple of people in that committee, not the entire committee. So I don't know how many there were, or who they all were, or anything like that. Um, but I know that it wasn't just one individual uh, making decisions and doing things. Um, the question that I have, though, is on this whole issue is, does, has anyone done the research or has the research out there of who these individuals might have been having to do with this specific statement because they may still be around they may still have some um, ability to tap some you know people that need to be tapped they would have been the ones that communicated with ABC just like they were the ones communicating with me um, and I don't know if the uh, Reagan Library is keeping this thing available to the public or if it's not available to the public at all, but I was wondering if you knew anything. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, certainly. There are actually some great um, uh, analysis uh, reports done of recently um, declassified documents that uh, point to these situation room meetings that were had specifically about the day after. and. Uh, they, uh, a lot of these academics draw the conclusion that um, a lot of the uh, uh, people, um, uh, uh, you know, Gerson mainly, um, uh, uh, and uh, a lot of others who were in charge of um, trying to create the words and the language uh, by which Reagan talked about nuclear war, um, you can see that they made a concerted effort to change their rhetoric and to try and um, basically lean into the power that the day after was having and saying, yes, you, you should see this, they'd said, even though that they were trying to do the opposite um, behind doors to the public, they were saying, see the day after, understand that nuclear war is horrible and know that we are doing everything we can to prevent it from happening. That is our entire agenda. Um, you know, so it, it was quite an interesting PR campaign that they did to try and um, hijack in a way the press that the day after was getting and try to co-opt it in a way to say, yep, yep, we're, we're trying to prevent this from happening. We know that it's horrible and we are trying to do whatever we can to make sure that the day after doesn't happen. Um, it's, uh, it's quite an interesting, you know, Gene Kirkpatrick, I think was uh, in a way part, part of, uh, of, of some of this, you know, there was a lot of, um, there were a lot of people putting in their two cents on how they can, uh, basically, uh, how they could basically say, um, 
we were always saying that we wanted to prevent a nuclear war from happening. Um, deterrence was one way of doing that, uh, but you know, understand that we are trying to do whatever we can. Uh, you know, it's um, it, it's it's very interesting how, how all this happens. And, and at one point, I wanted to show a bit of the uh, PR war between um, ABC and the press, who had their own agenda, and the White House, and how, in a way, they were all saying the same thing, even though they had um, uh, very different intentions behind that. So I recommend you read up on uh, all of this. It's um, it, would, it would make a fascinating book. And I know for a fact that a few people are already writing some books about this the day after and the White House response to it. Wow. Is there, oh, anyone, per oh, is, is there anyone pursuing these people to possibly support your program? I don't know if they, they do that. Uh, you know, I think we heard from Kenneth Edelman, which was wonderful, and he was more than happy to participate in this. Nobody else. And I believe me, I reached out to all of them. And um, I think that they were happy for it to live as it as it lived. And, um, you know, Ken also said, you got to understand this was 1983. There was a hell of a lot of stuff going on, especially around nuclear war. As um, is shown in *The Man Who Saved the World*, we we almost mm. came to a nuclear, uh, you know, accident simply because of um, human-made error, which is really still the greatest threat um, uh, to us with these thirteen thousand bombs that we have. What I can inform you as being one amongst them is that um, we had a few experiences of. Mm -hmm a certain thing we plan to do on a, a certain subject and it got out there and did things and then actually had a different repercussion, you know, kind of a yin yang situation. And those yangs put a lot of us into, I'm not doing anything anymore. You know, it, it, it just, it, it made you realize how much possibilities there are to happen. Hmm. Yeah, you can't always know what's going to happen when you do something. Okay, thank you again very much for your work. Thank you, Bonnie. Yes, thank you, Bonnie. And now let's quickly go. Well, not, Tom has uh, the floor. Go ahead, Tom. I just turned 74, and I can remember in the 50s the drill where you get under your desk, there's a nuclear war. How stupid that was. Hmm. At any rate, let me preface my statement by saying I do not intend this to be anti Semitic. My son-in-law is Jewish, and he abhors Zionism as much as most of the world does. You know, you get bit by a rattlesnake, everybody's concerned about the fangs. Nobody talks about the rattlesnake. Rattlesnake, to me, are the, uh, like you say, the money changers in the temple. The top puppet masters, everything is run by the fiat currency system we have today. And the people at the top control Congress. Take a look at Eisenhower's speech. I put a link there, it's in the film. Okay, so I just wanna uh, question Jeff and see why is it that every major podcast is scared of talking about the evils you know, it's conspiracy theory, this conspiracy theory, that, when in fact, this goes back to 1897 and Basil Switzerland for Zionist Congress. 1948, Israel becomes a nation. That was not the people of that region that created that 
entity, political entity, because before that, the Jewish people and the Christian people and the Muslim people, they all pretty much got along, okay? So I need to question everybody to number one, if you own stock in any of the military industrial complex, I don't care if they're making underwear for the army, divest your shares, Tell, call your broker. Let's start a thing where everybody starts selling off their shares oh. in the military industrial complex. You know, complex. Thank so you. So yes, those are my thoughts. I'll put my blog address in. I wasn't going to advertise myself, but I will put my yeah, blog put, address. Definitely put it in the chat. And yes, again, we're going to have Don't Bank on the Bomb on the 31st. So join us for that. And mm. she'll, she'll help us. Susie Snyder will help us go through the mo what we need to do, uh, the easy steps we can take to divest. Thank you, Tom. I'd for like that. to hear Jeff's response, though. Oh, Jeff, any response? Uh, well, uh, you know, I, th I think it's important to understand, you know, who, who the leaders are who are making these decisions uh, for us. And, uh, you know, I think that if there's any kind of theme in what we've all been talking about here, it's it being a better informed citizen. We have the ability to do that. We're empowered to do that. It's re our responsibility. We shouldn't have to be entertained by learning the facts, but unfortunately, that's the way it is. Um, and, you uh, uh, it, you know, so so understanding who it is who's supporting these uh, messages or these entertaining messages, um, uh, it, you know, I think we're best served by um, supporting independent artists who are able to then speak their, their minds and get their uh, their vision out there um, and, uh, you know, better inform people who are empowered to do so, so that they can hold their leaders accountable and not uh, have the wolf. Uh, you know, pulled over our eyes so that conspiracy theories seem to be the only things that make sense to us. Um, it, you know, um, taking back that power as we have the ability uh, to do is something that art can can help um, the, the process of. So we need to keep supporting that. We need to understand the value that artists have. We need to understand the value that an, an emotional understanding of a vast global issue can have. Um, so, I, you know, I think that's um, a very strong way of making sure that the, the people who are in positions of power are held accountable uh, to, you know, um, uh, to their actions and, and representing us truly. I think that's, um, we're in a place where we can do that. So, you know, any support of that, that people here um, uh, are, are uh, promoting in a way that uh, is good and, and not anti-Semitic, you know, I'm all for. Wonderful. So I hear that. Yes. Thank you, Jeff. Now, we'd, I'd like to introduce uh, quickly David Gallup, who is the head of the World Citizen Government founded by Gary Davis in 1953. Uh, wow. Yes, I know. David, <laughs> David, go right ahead. Jeff, thank you so much for making television event. Uh, it has such an emotional engagement and appeal, especially like Simri said, because of the Kansans that you had acting in the film from Lawrence. And I can tell you that I'm just starting to work with a professor from University of Kansas at Lawrence to uh, a history professor archive the history of the world citizenship movement and the world peace movement. We want to have a digital archive and maybe you have some digital material that we could put in that archive. So bringing it back to, to Kansas with, with that. And I also want to quickly uh, uh, say, uh, uh, Gary Davis used to say, we're all 30th cousins, we're all related. So we should be loving each other and not fighting each other. And on that point, it is such a small world because you are a cousin of my wife. 
which I just found out today because my her, her grandfather was one of the Caleb brothers who had the photo studio in New York City. No way. Ben yes. Caleb? Uh, his name was Maurice Caleb. Maurice Caleb. Caleb no yeah. Kidding. So he's he's one of the Caleb brothers. How close I don't know, but <laughs> the world is my country. Yes, exactly. So anyway, nice to meet you as a cousin. Yeah. Yeah, nice to meet you, cousin. Yeah. <laughs> wow, how fun is that? Wow. Amazing. Yes. Okay, well, we'll end it on that great note and go back to Arthur. Arthur, take it away. All right. Wow. Wow. Thank you. I hope you go to Washington and get to uh, see the incredible work of the uh, world citizen government there. Uh, the amazing number of refugees and other people who's whose lives have literally been turned around and saved by having these world passports. Uh, uh, even, even, uh, uh, it's even people who finally get to, this US, to the U.S. and want to try to get, uh, they want to get, uh, uh, they want to have their, their case heard for, for political asylum, they can't even get into the courthouse without a document. So some of the immigration lawyers send them over to the World Service Authority to get a world passport so they can at least get into the building and, and get their case heard. As so many pe people, it helps people who, who can't open bank accounts or all kinds of things. So uh, anyway, and, and uh, it's an amazing story. And you can see more about that in The World is My Country. And you'll also see in The World is My Country, our, our movie, uh, uh, it's, you'll also see... Uh, in Kansas, uh, you'll also see that uh, President Truman uh, made a powerful speech where he said, uh, where he said right to the people of Kansas uh, that uh, uh, that uh, he said he said you know countries don't don't have to go to war you know if, when 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 uh, two st states have a dispute with each other they take it to court you know we could so we could solve that kind of thing at the world level if. The world is our country. So, uh, so that was also in Kansas. Seems like Kansas is kind of uh, the uh, heartland here. That uh, that let's get back to that heart. And this is a way yeah. we can touch that heart with movies. So, uh, mm -hmm. thank you so much, Jeff, for being with us. I hope everybody does go to the links there to the television event webpage. Help us blast out television event on Facebook. And I think people are so right that it is. You know, everyone is saying in the chats, let's get. ABC to reshow the day after. I don't know. That's probably not too much in the cards right now. But what we can do is get get millions of people to be seeing television event. And, and once you see that, they're all going to go watch uh, the day after online. So this is how we reach uh, uh, millions and millions of people through, through getting your film out widely. So again, uh, I want to especially thank you for so much uh, next week, we have an amazing guest, the star of your film, Nicholas Meyer. Uh, and, and what we're talking about with Nicholas Meyer is both cautionary films like The Day After that give us a visceral feeling of, the, of actually experiencing the horror of nuclear war. But then we can't just be left with that because we drown in that darkness and we just feel hopeless. Mm. What can we do? And then what he's done, he's created these incredible, inspiring movies in the Star Trek series where... Uh, where we kind of have allegories for mm. a future where people of all different cultures and kinds and shapes and everything come together and they start working on how do you solve problems and they, they travel around the universe finding one problem or another and and trying to find rational solutions to them not by you know blowing each other up and so um, uh, so come back next week everyone to hear our um, amazing discussion with Nicholas Meyer be sure to uh, uh, during this week, 
push out uh, Jeff's film. And also, uh, it's very interesting to, to read the memoirs, View from the Bridge. Uh, I've been, it's also an audio book and so on of Nicholas Meyer and hear about his amazing life. So uh, come back next week to, to hear more of our talk with him. And uh, we'll also have be, be uh, sometime shortly getting Daniel Ellsberg back on, uh, on the nuclear issue and the current imp important work that he's doing in that area. So try to join, go ahead and join people. Go to the peoplepoweredplanet.com. It takes you to our club page. And uh, go ahead and join. If you're not a member already, uh, uh, you get the first two months free. And if you like it, keep going at 10 a month. That'll help us so we can do this and keep carrying on these podcasts. So uh, everyone, please be a member be to join us. And now I'm going to give uh, Jeff a chance to have the last word as he tells us more about how we can move forward with his film and uh, and with, with carrying on this effort. Thank you all for listening. I think this is the main thing. We're all get, uh, we're gathering together. Um, we have... Um, uh, similar goals. We have different ideas on how to get there, and we're all coming together to um, to speak about this. Um, uh, you know, with with, um, with passion. That that's what is needed. Uh, it, you know, we're, we're the people who actually care and and uh, want to try and gain people's attention by directing them to the facts. Uh, I I uh, applaud all that you're doing with this, and I'm so uh, proud to have my film a part of your conversation. And um, uh, I, uh, you know, I'm glad that it's in some way contributing, and I look forward to staying in contact with uh, the people who I've met here so far, so that um, we can continue the momentum of this, especially at this time. You know, the true the eleventh the eleventh hour, uh, we're a hundred seconds to midnight. Is that where we are? So yes. now more than ever, you know, uh, thank you so much um, for sharing your space with me. All right. Well, thanks everyone for coming to another episode of the People Powered Planet podcast. Uh, see you next week and every week at the same time. World citizen, lift up your voices. Oh, you know we got something to say. All we need is the same directions, heading in one way. One way.